recently observed the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. And at the Passover, we remember God's awesome love for us, that he sacrificed his own son for us, and the Savior of the world paid for our sins. As John the Baptist said in John 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We also learn from the days of unleavened bread that once we're reconciled to God, we have a part in God's plan. We must not stand still. We go forward in faith. We learn that we must overcome Satan, self, and society. We must continually grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as it tells us in 2 Peter 3, verse 18. Then with God's power, we're in a process of replacing human nature with God's nature as he instills in us with our cooperation, his spirit, and his character. We have to replace the leavened bread of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We must love the truth. We need to treasure the truth. We need to walk in the truth, live the truth, speak the truth, obey the truth, and rejoice in the truth. Uh, Sermon number 410 uh, summarizes those commitments. But there are times in life when we face our Red Sea. We just heard in the special music that at times we bend our knees and we cry out to God. That's when God miraculously opens a Red Sea for us. It's happened for me, and I'm sure it's happened for you in times past. But there's something that we must do. What did God tell the Israelites once the Red Sea was open for them? What did he tell Moses? Back in Exodus 14, he said, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. And that's what we've been doing, one of the biggest lessons that we've learned during the days of unleavened bread. We go forward in faith, and we follow our leader, Jesus Christ, apparently the sermon here in headquarters, the last day of unleavened bread, was titled Followers of Christ. We have to go forward, but as we go forward, we have to overcome obstacles, temptations, trials, and sometimes we give in to those trials. Sometimes we allow ourselves to be victims of abuse, victims of deception, and then we begin practicing sin. Because we gave in to human nature, we gave in to the ways of the world, or we gave in to Satan's subtle deceptions. So how do we overcome these enemies? You turn to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. Today I want to emphasize a principle that the Apostle Paul instructed the young evangelist Timothy. 1 Timothy, the uh, 6th chapter, I've using a uh, new King James Study Bible that I purchased, so it's a little uh, awkward in turning to some of these pages. But 2 Timothy 6 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 6, uh, I'm sure it's in here somewhere. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Sorry, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. All right. It just appeared. He says in uh, verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, 
to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. We don't normally think of fighting as a Christian responsibility. We don't fight physically in warfare or boxing matches, but we're called to fight a spiritual battle, and we're called to win. The title of the sermon is The Fight of Faith. Why should we fight? Well, because God tells us to. We just read that in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, to fight the good fight of faith. Recently, I discovered that my blood pressure was getting too high. Perhaps I was spending too much time working and not enough exercising, so what should I do? I knew that I had to do something, so I wrote down in my little lesson book, Fight for Your Health. It was a personal lesson. So I took a a commitment and a discipline, and I made myself go to the YMCA, which I do on occasion, but this time I did it four times one week and four times the next week, and uh, once in a while, see uh, Dr. Meredith there if he's in town. And uh, so for two weeks, I jogged my while and lifted weights, and my blood pressure dropped by 20 points, and I was very encouraged by that. But I realized that I had to do something. I have to fight for my health. And there are other areas of life which we need to fight. We might ask, why should we fight spiritual battles? Again, one of the major lessons we learned during the days of unleavened bread is that we must overcome. We fight spiritual battles because God instructs us and instructs us to fight, to overcome, and to win. We must fight the good fight of faith. There are two approaches to fighting for faith. One is that we fight against spiritual evils, and the other approach is that we fight for the truth. Years ago, an apostasy attempted to overthrow and seduce us from our true faith. And Dr. Meredith led the way to counteract false teachings. We might turn to Jude 3, with which we're all familiar. Jude 3. Dr. Meredith emphasized then, as he does even now, the need to restore original Christianity. Jude was about to write a general letter of exhortation to his audience, but then he discovered that there were false teachers, there were the subversions going on, and he sent what, in essence, is called an emergency letter. He said in verse 3, the Apostle Jude, Beloved, when I was very diligent, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend. When you contend, you're putting forth effort. You might just say you're fighting for the truth. To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We fight for the truth. We fight for the way of God's commandments and His Word. Many don't fight for the truth, and their faith uh, is overthrown when they do not fight for the truth. In the past, those who apostatized wanted freedom. Let's turn back to Romans, the sixth chapter, Romans 6, but they got the wrong kind of freedom. Romans 6 and verse 20. The Apostle Paul makes this spiritual principle clear. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I remember years ago, one woman who apostatized and 
went along with the false idea of a new covenant. She said, I'm free, I'm free. She meant she was free to uh, eat pork. She was free to uh, break the Sabbath. She was free to transgress the holy days. That's what she meant. And many others followed that same kind of deception. But what they may have realized or probably did not realize that now they were no longer slaves of righteousness, but they were slaves of sin, of breaking God's commandments. Verse 21, What fruit do you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin, and that's all of us, I pray, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. We need to be bearing spiritual fruits. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, the apostates were now free to eat pork, free to profane the Sabbath and the holy days, free to pervert the gospel of Christ, but they became slaves of sin. Well, how do you fight the good fight of faith? I asked my wife, as usual, and when I'm preparing a sermon, and she said, to be a faithful soldier of Christ. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 2, uh, back to Timothy again. 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and verse 1. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul writes to the young evangelist, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so we have several training programs. We have the Living Leadership course. We have a ministerial training course. We have the Bible study course. And if we're all on the same page, we're all learning, we someday are going to be teaching the world. And so we need to, again, educate ourselves to the truth and embrace the truth. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. On this uh, King James Study Bible, there are a listing across the facing page here after it talks about our being soldiers, uh, descriptions of the Christian life. In describing how Christians should live, Paul often resorts to analogies or metaphors. This chart lists some of the metaphors of the Christian life found in the New Testament. Soldiers, 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Farmers, 2 Timothy 2, 6. Athletes, 2 Timothy 2, 5. Workers, 2 Timothy 2, 15. Vessels, 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. Fishers of men, Matthew 4, 19. Salt, light, branches, stewards, ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20, living stones, priests, and sojourners. But today I want to emphasize our role as Christian soldiers. He goes on then in verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Do we entangle ourselves with the affairs of this life? Many people in God's church from time to time are deceived because they allow themselves to engage in the affairs of this life. That doesn't mean that we don't fulfill our responsibilities. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Who are you pleasing? Are you doing those things that are pleasing to God? 
And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So Paul told Timothy to endure hardness or hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Are you a good soldier of Jesus Christ? We don't normally think of ourselves playing that role. Perhaps when we sing onward, Christian soldiers, we do. But we are in a constant warfare, and we need to consider our responsibilities as Christian soldiers. So in the remainder of the sermon, I want to give you seven battle strategies. How do you fight the good fight of faith? Number one is to know your enemy. In any war, you need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your enemy. Dr. Meredith mentioned in the announcements, the booklet, Satan's Counterfeit Christianity. Satan has great power. He has great counterfeits. He has great wiles and schemes to deceive many. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we are not ignorant of his devices. And I hope you are not ignorant of his devices or his schemes. And if you have access to the Internet, I encourage you to watch the Tomorrow's World telecast Seven Satanic Deceptions. I'll list the seven deceptions for you. You don't need to write them down. But all of them show how Satan has an influence. If we give in slightly through our human nature or the influence of the world, Satan can capitalize on our little weaknesses. Deception number one was false doctrine. Deception number two is lust. And we heard uh, in the sermonette, the ways of the world and how we need to teach our children to resist the ways of the world. Deception number three is pride, vanity, and arrogance. Deception number four is lying. Deception number five is false dreams, visions, and miracles. Satanic deception number six is bitterness. And we have to always be on guard to not let hurt feelings turn to grudges which turn to bitterness. Satanic deception number seven is lack of faith. Of course, during the days of unleavened bread, we saw how the Israelites coming out of Egypt lacked faith. They did not trust God, and they allowed their hearts to be hardened. So we need to know our enemy. Not only must we recognize Satan's deceptions, but we also need to know ourselves. We had a sermon a few weeks ago on self-examination. We know that the heart is deceitful above all things or beyond cure, as it says in the NIV. That's Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So your heart, your very nature, is very deceitful. I don't know if you've ever recognized in your own nature and the history of your life how you've deceived yourself. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I hope you know that you can recognize or you know that you Uh, have a deceitful nature, and that you can recognize it when you start to rationalize so you can give in to temptation. But we must acknowledge our sins. We need to confess our sins, and uh, that can be difficult for some. I may have shared this with you before, but uh, I want to bring out another side point in uh, this particular illustration. This was uh, Peanuts, and uh, Charlie Brown said to Lucy, Uh, You, you admit you were wrong? You, you? He's just astounded that Lucy could ever admit that she ever made a mistake. Have you known people like that? 
Of course, Charlie Brown, I'll admit that I've been wrong before. I remember the last time I was wrong about something. It was in 1958, I think. You know, 50 years ago, I think Lucy was a little younger back about 50 years ago. This might be an old comic strip. I don't know. Uh, certainly not. <clears throat> anyway, I, re <laughs> I remember back to 1958, too. <clears throat> she says, I was wrong about something. It was in 1958, I think, along in July, sometime, or was it August? Yes, the last time I was wrong was in August 1958. I think it was on a Monday. And then Charlie Brown says, uses an expression which we should not use, and that's a side point I want to bring out. He says, oh, good grief. So I do want to mention here in passing, of course, the, the fact that Lucy just was uh, able to admit one mistake, uh, and sometimes we admit our mistakes, but we don't really see the cause of those mistakes, which is our ugly, selfish human nature. As I said in one of the recent sermons, if you haven't ever seen your human nature, pray and ask God to reveal it to you, and if he does, you will be repulsed at what you see. We all have human nature. But the second point, or the side point I want to just briefly mention here, is that Charlie Brown says, good grief. Now, what does that mean? Is grief good? Of course not. And I would have probably said something like, amazing, or incredible, unbelievable, that, that Lucy would, uh, you know, admit one problem. So we have to, again, choose our words carefully. Remember that Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, but I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. We had a sermon recently on the power of words. And apparently, some church members are using what we call euphemisms without realizing it. And Jesus said not to swear at all. And yet, you may hear someone say from time to time, for land's sake, or for heaven's sake, or gosh, for God. Now, they don't think that they're swearing, but it's just a counterfeit or a, a euphemism uh, for something that is holy. God said, don't swear by the land. Don't swear by God's throne. And yet, some of our brethren apparently are using these euphemisms without realizing it. One definition for euphemism is, quote, a substitution of a description of something or someone rather than the name to avoid revealing secret, holy, or sacred names to the uninitiated. Now, that's from Wikipedia. Well, it's not exactly the way we use the term euphemisms, but we want to be careful that we are not transgressing what Christ instructed us in taking what he says, swear not at all by heaven or even by your beard, I think is one of the expressions. And, of course, they're the little pigs, three little pigs, you know, by the, by, by the hairs of my chinny-chin-chin. You know, they actually take the opposite of what Christ said. So again, I just want to encourage you, brethren, to use your words carefully. In this first one uh, section, the battle strategy of knowing your enemy, one of the articles that helped me many years ago was Mr. David John Hill's article, You Are Your Own Worst Enemy. Uh, Dr. Meredith referred to uh, Mr. David John Hill in the announcements. The article originally ran in the 1962 Good News and was rerun in December 1967. Uh, I had uh, David John Hill as a teacher in Old Testament survey 
He was very, very colorful. Uh, he was very productive in, in God's work for a long time. This is the way he starts his article, very uh, graphic writing. Uh, you are your own worst enemy. He starts, you are at war. Whether or not you know it, your life has been plunged into a state of emergency by the almighty creator who made you. The promise of eternal life is made only to one who has gained the victory to the overcomer. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Revelation 3, verse 12. It goes on in the next paragraph. To overcome means to conquer. It is not a passive fight that God has called us to, but a direct frontal onslaught, a crushing conquest. It is an all-out war, total war. Now, in that article, and I remember reading it, I, must, I think I must have read it in 1962 um, or maybe in 1967 when it was reprinted. But at the conclusion of the article, he gives this assignment. And I've encouraged churches that I've pastored in the past to actually do this assignment. I've done it myself several times, and I've shared with you in previous sermons some of my personal comments. This is what uh, David John Hill writes at the end of his article. In order to come to grips with your worst enemy, to come concretely to the attack so you will know exactly what to do, I urge you to write a short essay about yourself. After praying on your knees to Almighty God in the attitude expressed by the above scriptures, take out a piece of paper and title it, What I Am. Be candid, truthful before God. Ask God to help you see you as he sees you. Then describe what he opens your mind to see. After you have this written, you will know what you need to change. Ask God directly in prayer to help you overcome one of the points that you have written down about yourself. In a succeeding article, we will examine several other phases of human nature concretely and specifically to help you find out even more how your human nature works and how you, the begotten Son of God, may overcome this nature and stand before God more than a conqueror. Now, I remember the first time that I did this, and when I was prayed and asked God, please help me to see myself, I wrote down a few things and uh, said, oh, well, that's enough, and realized, no, I, I better pursue this. And I got down on my knees again and said, well, Father, please show me more of my weaknesses and I began writing, and sure enough, more weaknesses were down. I stopped again and uh, realized, no, I better keep on till I completed that paper. And it was very eye-opening to me. It was a, an excellent exercise. And if you've never done it, to know your own worst enemy, I recommend that you follow that exercise. Once you know your enemy and once you know who will fight for you, then you can fight the good fight of faith. So battle strategy number one is know your enemy. Battle strategy number two is what we've read a couple times already, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Battle strategy number two is endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Soldiers endure hardship. They sleep in cramped quarters if they even get to sleep. I remember seeing uh, recently on a, a history channel of uh, someone in war who had not changed his clothes in six months. And, uh, you know, you endured hardship. 
as soldiers. And so Christ says that's what we need to do. After the uh, last day of Unleavened Bread in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, we had the opportunity to tour the USS Lexington aircraft carrier, which is uh, docked there in Corpus Christi. Uh, We saw World War II film footage of a kamikaze, a suicide airplane, smash into the Lexington. Of course, many were killed and many were injured. And kamikaze in Japanese stands for divine wind. Of course, that is a misnomer. It certainly was not a godly wind, uh, but they were suicide attackers. They had bombs, and they just fly their airplanes into the ships. And Satan knows how to throw kamikaze attacks at us, so we must always be on guard. Let's turn to James, the first chapter. The Apostle James tells us to endure hardships and how to, what our attitude should be when we do, James 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience is kind of an abstract uh, idea, but it happens to be a characteristic, a godly characteristic, of those who endure to the end. may have told you the story before about one of our uh, brethren in... uh, I guess it was uh, in Burma, who was going to meet one of the ministers. And he had to travel uh, by foot over mountains and whatever for maybe about a day and get to a port on a river where he could get a boat down to uh, one of the major cities. And he just missed the boat, but it was only once a day. I mean, Americans just couldn't take that. But he simply, patiently, folded his arms, folded his legs in the Oriental style, and just sat there for 24 hours in the boat uh, port facility until the next day to get the next boat down the river. You know, are we patient? Can we endure? And we, as as, uh, James says, the trying of our faith produces patience, but let it have its perfect work that we may be complete and entire. It's a process of character development. When we understand the reason for the benefit from our sufferings, We can endure, and God is perfecting us. As he tells us in Romans 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9. We also must exercise discipline, something that parents, of course, are teaching their children to instill in them a certain discipline. I think I probably learned discipline more when I went out for football practice in high school, uh, more than I had uh, in any other um, activity before. And, uh, of course, you you uh, go through all the uh, running and the uh, exercise and the calisthenics. And um, when I became co-captain of the football team, Butch Heidel and I, uh, you know, we'd be on our backs, and you lift up your legs, and you lift up your chest, and you're, you pound your belly. Uh, you know, you're disciplining yourself. You're beating your, your body, uh, so to speak. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul says here in First Corinthians 9, starting with verse 24. And the heading here is striving for a crown. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you, will, you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate 
in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Talking about a boxer, shadow boxing. And of course there were the Olympic sports, the Greco, uh, Greco-Roman sports in those days. And uh, the Apostle Paul was aware of them. He was uh, noticing them. You know, Dr. Meredith knows what it's like to, to box. He was a gold, golden gloves fighter at one time. And now he boxes spiritually, for which we're all very, very thankful. And uh, one member from Nyack, New York, wrote to Dr. Meredith concerning his articles and booklets. He said to Dr. Meredith, quote, You write like you used to box. You pack a good punch, end of quote. So he's still boxing spiritually, and we need to, as the Apostle Paul says, goes on to write, uh, but thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So we have to put forth that kind of effort to endure hardship, to be proactive, to be disciplined. Do you discipline your body? Does your mind control your body? Or does your body control your mind? Just how strong is your faith? How strong is your character? God is the master creator, and he's creating his perfect character in us as we cooperate with him. Remember what Mr. Armstrong wrote in The Mystery of the Ages concerning the supreme creative accomplishment. Verse, uh, verse, page uh, 69 of Mystery of the Ages, Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, But what do we mean by righteous character? Perfect, holy, and righteous character is the ability in such separate entity to come to discern the true and right way from the false, to voluntarily, uh, to make voluntarily a full and unconditional surrender to God and His perfect way, to yield to be conquered by God, to determine even against temptation or self-desire to live and to do the right. And even then, such holy character is a gift of God. It comes by yielding to God to instill His law, God's right way of life, within the entity who so decides and wills. Actually, this perfect character comes only from God as instilled within the entity of His creation, upon voluntary acquiescence, even after severe trial and test. So we have to will. Our will has got to be in harmony with God's will. It's just like um, Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the next verse says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's an one of those powerful verses that has to do with how you can overcome and how you can have the power to change and how you can have the power to be victorious over your enemies. So I encourage all of you to make sure you mark Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It goes right along with Galatians 5.20. So we cooperate with God, and David cooperated with God. He asked God to create in him a clean heart, in Psalm 51 and verse 10. He said, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. 
So you and I are, and God's people are becoming God's masterpiece of creation. If you want to learn more, you can uh, listen to Sermon 399, God's Greatest Creation. So we need to identify ourselves as Christian soldiers. We must overcome our spiritual enemies, and we must be victorious. One of the most effective generals in military history was General Douglas MacArthur. And during the Korean War, he wrote a letter on March 20th, 1951, which he delivered to Representative Joseph W. Martin, Jr., in response to a House of Representatives hearing on the military situation in the Far East. General MacArthur revealed his determination in this letter. Quote, It seems strangely difficult for some to realize that here in Asia is where the communist conspirators have elected to make their play for global conquest, and that we have joined the issue thus raised on the battlefield, that here we fight Europe's war with arms while the diplomats there still fight it with words, that if we lose the war to communism in Asia, the fall of Europe is inevitable. Win it, and Europe most probably will avoid war and yet preserve freedom. As you pointed out, we must win. There is no substitute for victory. And that last phrase, of course, has been very well known to people around the world. There is no substitute for victory. And there's no substitute for our victory over our spiritual enemies. We have to be committed to win and to endure. I won't turn there now, but I'll just refer you to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Battle strategy number two is endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, again, reminded us that uh, we must fight that good fight of faith. Turn to 2 Timothy again, 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. At the end of Paul's life, he summarized his spiritual battles, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Well, we'll start in verse 6. Sorry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith, the race. I have kept the faith. And I hope that every one of us can be saying, saying that at the end of our lives. Again, battle strategy number two is endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Battle strategy number three is recapture true values. The world broadcasts false values, as we heard in the sermonette, and they broadcast those false values 24-7. Those false values include cheating, lying, killing, oppressing, adultery, immorality, lust, greed, and selfishness. So again, how do you overcome those false values? We need to be proactive. We must replace false values with true values, and that's in every area of life. We need to apply the spiritual principles as exemplified by Christ and the apostles. 
Dr. Meredith gave a sermon a couple years ago, I believe it was, What Would Jesus Really Do? That's sermon number 402 in our church library. What would Jesus really do? We have to think about the biblical principles and how do they apply to every facet of life in the 21st century. The Bible is up to date in the 21st century because it tells us how to recapture the true biblical values in all facets of life, whether it be family relations, business, employment, art, literature, entertainment, or sports. I personally get uh, peeved, uh, use a simple word, by some of the sports teams that uh, have nicknames. And some take it very lightly, but there are those teams that have followed, given their names after Satan or after demons. There are the Blue Demons of DePaul University. These are mainly college teams, uh, sometimes uh, ba- mostly basketball teams. Uh, Blue Devils, also used by six schools in addition to Duke. And you know why I do not cheer for Duke. Delta Devils, that's the Mississippi Valley State University. And Wake Forest here in North Carolina, the Demon Deacons. And Demons used by two schools, Myers College and Northwestern State University of Louisiana. Jersey Devils, that's Farley Dickinson University. Red Devils, three schools, Eureka College, Dean College, Dickinson College. And the Sun Devils of Arizona State University. And we can say, oh, well, that's just fun. You know, it's, it's not, you know, it's very harmless. Oh, is it really harmless? You see, we're not recapturing true values when we give in to Satan's deceptions because he makes it think like, well, there's nothing to this. This is just light humor, and we can call ourselves demons and and devils and whatever we want to call ourselves. No, you do not do that. You're giving in to a satanic way of life, not to the true values of the Bible and not to the true values of Christ. Romans 12, 17, let's turn there, gives us a principle for recapturing true values and overcoming these deceptions. Romans 12, starting with verse 17. These are true values of life. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 13, I'm sorry, Romans 12, verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I used to think as a young boy, and I had my one boxing experience when I got angry at a neighbor, and we both put on the boxing gloves. And I realized sometime after that, after reading what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And I realized doing that is more macho than getting into a boxing match. You have the courage, you have the character to do what right what Christ is saying rather than lashing out in a physical boxing match. 
So when we follow Christ, we're recapturing true values, and we're applying them. And we certainly need to overcome evil with good. We need to learn how to do that. And, of course, as we've mentioned so many times, and yet uh, so important, when you want to replace a bad habit, you overcome a bad habit, you replace it with a good habit. Sometimes parents say, well, quit watching television or quit playing that video game or quit doing this or quit doing that, but they don't give them a positive other replacement activity. You replace... You overcome something bad by replacing a good act or a bad activity with a good activity. The same way with thinking, as we've emphasized so many times in Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, there be any virtue or if there be any praise or excellence, think on these things. And you replace the wrong thoughts with the right thoughts. You begin to have the mind of Christ. So battle strategy number three is recapture true values. Battle strategy number four is maintain a repentant attitude. I emphasized this in my last sermon. But one of Satan's schemes is to turn our hurt feelings into bitterness. But if we maintain a repentant attitude, we can overcome those hurt feelings. Turn to 1 John, the first chapter. 1 John 1. Very encouraging to know that when you sin, you can confess your sins. There are certain uh, religions that have you confess to a priest. But here God says that you confess to him. Now, again, I want to qualify that there are times when someone who is uh, addicted to some kind of problem, whether it's alcoholism or pornography or some other kind of addiction, that you need help. You may need psychiatric help. Uh, primarily, you need ministerial help, and at other times, you may need a support group. So we understand that. But God says here in, in 1 John 1, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, we just have to believe God. We have to say, okay, I'm confessing this sin, I'm sorry, but again, it's not going to be forgiven unless the repentance includes a determination to change, a determination to overcome, a determination not to repeat the same sin. Because I know I've gone through that process in the past where I started to confess my sin, but I know in the back of my mind, when the temptation comes along again, I'm going to give in to it. Well, God's not going to forgive that sin until you come to the point where you are determined with God's help, because you know you can't do it on your own, to not repeat that same sin. Now, you may, but you must be be determined not to repeat that sin. And again, verse 7 is so inspiring and encouraging. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So in battle strategy number three, we need to, again, recapture true values. And one other comment here, but I'll pass on that. Battle, I'm sorry, battle strategy number four is to maintain a repentant attitude. 
You know, there are, we are on the airplane, we fly, they have these uh, magazines and they have uh, Sky Mall and one of the uh, products that is sometimes advertised are called Successories. They're dramatic photos and they have these uh, famous quotations. The one that attracted my attention uh, coming back from Corpus Christi on the plane was called The Power of Attitude. It showed an orange-colored sky with lightning bolts uh, through the sky. And the power of attitude was described as follows, quote, Our lives are not determined by what happens to us, but how we react to what happens. Not by what life brings to us, but by the attitude we bring to life. A positive attitude causes a chain reaction of positive thoughts, events, and outcomes. It is a catalyst a spark that creates extraordinary results, end of quote. Well, we saw that Caleb had that kind of attitude when he said in Numbers, the 13th chapter, you know, as one of the 12 spies, when all the others said, no, we can't go up against those giants, he said, we are well able to overcome it. And that's the attitude we need, one of those lessons of the days of unleavened bread. And David, of course, said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. He had a repentant attitude. He said, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We must always maintain a repentant attitude. We must always be teachable. Battle strategy number four is maintain a repentant attitude. Battle strategy number five is make sure... Your heart is in God's work. Remember what we read already uh, when Paul told Timothy, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That was 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Many who do not understand the true purpose of the church have made the mistake of seeking a selfish ambition. Those selfish people fail to realize that we grow in godly character. How? By serving God and supporting his work. Mr. Armstrong emphasized that vital principle in his co-worker letter of November 18, 1974, just as one of several examples. He said, quote, or he wrote in his co-worker letter, quote, and God has given us the work to do as the very means by which we may grow spiritually, so that we may enter his kingdom at Christ's coming. In 47 years, I have observed that only those whose hearts are fully in the work continue to overcome and grow spiritually and endure. Through the years, I, with those added for their part in the work, continued to announce the wonderful news of the coming kingdom of God and all that that message embodied. Never have we sought to get, but always give the good news of God's truth. And all of us, I believe, are committed to give that good news to the world. As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, freely give. So are you doing your part? Are you supporting the Tomorrow's World telecast? Are you watching it weekly? If you can't see it on commercial television, are you watching it on the Internet? If you can't see it on the Internet, are you checking out DVD copies of the telecast from your church library? It's important, brethren, that you be tied into the work that Christ is doing. Of course, we're blessed here in 
Charlotte, where we can see it three times, uh, 6 o'clock uh, Sunday morning on WGN, and then uh, WAXN at 7 o'clock, and then Monday evenings at 7.30 over WHKY. So we are blessed here. But are you also reading the Tomorrow's World magazine and the Living Church News? Are you humbly reading Dr. Meredith's co-worker letters and praying for their success? Do you take a co-worker letter as a message from Christ to you? And do you respond to it? Do you pray for its success? And I've suggested to you before, suggest to you again, as a measure of your real response to that letter, are you once in a while, I'll suggest to you, you may not be doing that, but I'll suggest you put an extra $5 bill into that envelope that comes with the co-worker letter, or a $10 bill that comes with that co-worker letter. Are you just ignoring the co-worker letters, or are you responding to them in a meaningful way? Are you responding to Christ? We here at headquarters in Charlotte do appreciate the sacrifice and faithful support of co-workers and brethren all over the world, and we believe that you're doing a great job in that support. But again, we all need that encouragement. And as you pray for the work, as you put your emotions, your heart, and your prayers into God's work, you'll be fighting the good fight of faith, and you'll be growing spiritually. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Battle strategy number five is make sure your heart is in God's work. Battle strategy number six is rely on God's power for victory. Turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Some of us, when we reach 70 years of age, begin to tire more easily. I've found that myself. I have to take naps more frequently. Of course, I might mention that uh, presidents of the United States also take naps. But even young adults may feel fatigued because they're not living by the laws of good health, and we must do our part. That's why I wrote in my lesson book, Fight for Health. God gives us the gift of power. He gives us spiritual armor to Christian soldiers, Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. We're going to be faithful soldiers of Christ. We need to rely on the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are in a spiritual warfare. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I think most of us are standing, but we must take heed and not take for granted that we have it made. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Truth is so precious and valuable. Jesus said, Thy word is truth, in John 17, 17, in his prayer the night before he was crucified. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's God's righteousness, not our own righteousness. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, because we can see the good news of the coming kingdom of God when all the world will be at peace under the rulership of Christ and the saints. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And those darts are thrown at us daily. 
We need to fend them off. I think I shared with you before, we got to see Mr. Uh, C.J. Wieselski down in uh, Houston in Corpus Christi. And remember a sermon that he gave years ago was the uh, armaments of God. And he had the shield of faith. And he had a styrofoam shield cut out. And on it he had written, dead faith. So again, dead faith is not going to be a very strong shield. It has to be an active faith. Taking up the shield of faith, and then, above all, taking up the shield of faith, and then, verse uh, 17, and take the helmet of salvation, which is around your mind, your thoughts. What are you thinking? Are you reading the Bible every day? Are you thinking about those things that are true and honest, just, and lovely, and have a good report? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul was in prison when he wrote the epistle to the Ephesians. So there are six elements of the armor, but then he goes on to say you need to pray for the saints, and you need to pray for the ministry. And I hope that you're all doing that as a part of the complete armor of God. The sword, of course, is the only offensive weapon that is mentioned here in the armor of God. So we need to be able to take that spiritual sword and know it, read it, apply it, live it, and internalize that word so that it becomes a part of our character. We need all of those elements of spiritual armor. Again, uh, recently we saw uh, April, this past April 6, 2008, uh, Dr. Meredith's telecast, Overcoming Satan. And we need all those spiritual elements to overcome Satan. The telecast uh, produced an excellent response when it offered uh, 12 keys to answered prayer. So again, the seventh element here is praying for one another and praying for the ministry to Speak boldly. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. Let's turn to Second Timothy, Second uh, Corinthians, uh, chapter ten. Second Corinthians, chapter ten. I think we started about uh, ten minutes late, didn't we? Second uh, Corinthians, the tenth chapter, and verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Though some of us need to rely more on God's power. And when we're weak, we need to claim God's promises for strength. I remember my very first Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy in 1961. I met an elderly gentleman who said he was too weak to walk. But he told me, I just move one foot in front of the other, and God gives me the strength to walk. And some of us feel that way. I feel weak from time to time. But God gives us that promise in Isaiah 40. He gives power to the weak. 
and those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. That's Isaiah 40 and verse 31. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Battle strategy number six is rely on God's power for victory. Battle strategy number seven is exercise vision. We need to look beyond today's world and envision tomorrow's world. Make sure you read Dr. Meredith's new booklet, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? God gives us a view into the future. Of course, we experience the foretaste of the coming kingdom of God at the Feast of Tabernacles every year. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12. You know the millennial chapters, or you should. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, Micah 2, Zechariah 14. And, of course, you know Proverbs 29, 18, where he says, where there is no revelation or vision in the King James, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Well, God has given us revelation. We know the end of the story. We know the good news of the coming kingdom. We know what's going to happen. Whether we live or die, of course, Paul wrote in Romans, whether we live, we are the Lord's. Whether we die, we are the Lord's. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And I hope that every one of us has made that commitment. Jesus was able to see, even through his pain and suffering, uh, he saw ahead. He saw the vision of his future glorification. And, of course, he even prayed, restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was, he prayed that night. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those men and women of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He envisioned the future. He envisioned the time when he was no longer in pain. I know I've gone through that exercise when I've been in pain, and I'm thinking, oh, I can envision the time when I'm no longer in pain. And uh, you think about the time when God is going to heal you. But we think forward to the time when Christ is going to rule the earth as the Prince of Peace, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he is the author and finisher of our faith. We need to look to him. So as we exercise vision, we can endure to the end. We anticipate with great joy that the kingdom that God is going to give to his children. We need to run the race with patience and endurance. In World War II, when Great Britain was facing overwhelming power of the enemy, Prime Minister Winston Churchill urged his people to persevere. During a speech at Harrow School in Harrow, England, on October 29, 1949, 1941, he stated, Never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. End of quote. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty four thirteen, He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So look forward to the kingdom. Pray for the kingdom to come. 
and look forward to Christ's second coming. Battle strategy number seven is exercise vision. Let's turn to Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans, the eighth chapter. God has given us awesome promises and awesome power through his spirit. One of the most encouraging scriptures among many, many encouraging scriptures is Romans 8 and verse 31. Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's going to ensure that you'll be in the kingdom. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with Christ, also freely give us all things? And the Greek there for all things is tapanta, meaning all things seen and unseen, including the universe. So God has demonstrated that love. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers. We will be victorious. There is no substitute for victory. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So as we fight the good fight of faith, we will smash sin and selfishness into smithereens. We will be more than overcomers. Remember what Moses did to the sin of the Israelites, the golden calf? He ground it into powder. And we need to grind our sins into powder. We need to smash it to smithereens. Of course, Moses put the ground gold into water and made them drink it. God is giving us power to demolish our sins and to overcome our spiritual enemies. One, two final scriptures in closing. Second Corinthians, the second chapter. Second Corinthians, one that I've been memorizing and trying to internalize and I pray about often, 2 Corinthians 2 and uh, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Yes, we can fight the good fight of faith. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. God is preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And through us, He is spreading that knowledge in every place, but he leads us in triumph in Christ. I pray almost daily for victories, achievements, successes, overcomings, accomplishments, and triumphs in Christ. Sometimes when I'm discouraged, I ask God for encouragement and that I can encourage others. But pray that you will have triumph in Christ. Let's turn to a final scripture, which I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. 
The final enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. So that when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God has given us a mission to accomplish, and as we put our hearts into that mission, we grow and we overcome. There are times when we need to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. There are times to go forward in faith, and now is that time. So may we all endure hardships as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. May we be able to say at the end of our lives, just as the Apostle Paul did, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith.